Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders in fundraising and philanthropy. I'm your host, Jay Frost. Karen E. Osborne loves and believes in the power of philanthropy and nonprofits. She built her career around these passions, not only as a frontline fundraiser, speaker, trainer, teacher, consultant, and coach, but also as a donor, volunteer, and board member. She has served in senior positions at colleges and universities, and for the past 25 years, as president and now senior strategist at the Osborne Group. Nationally and internationally recognized, she is the recipient of Case's Crystal Apple for Outstanding Teaching and Public Speaking, and their Ashmore Award for Outstanding Service to the Profession. She's also an adjunct faculty member for Johns Hopkins University's Graduate Certificate Program in Nonprofit Management. Karen is additionally a published author. Her first novel, Getting It Right, debuted in 2017, followed by the thriller Tang of Lies in 2021. Her third novel, Reckonings, will be released this summer. So let's just begin with uh, where things always begin, which is in the Bronx. I know you've talked about this with others, but can you paint us a picture? Absolutely. So we grew up uh, in the Bronx, my father and my aunt, they bought a house together. And so we lived downstairs and they lived upstairs and the basement was shared. It was a big, big, big basement. And then the only grass was a little plot in the front of the house that my aunt cultivated and planted and stuff. And everything else was concrete. But it was a neighborhood of strivers. Everybody was an immigrant. Uh, They were from some Caribbean island. And everybody was your dad or your mom. Uh, So you could get, you know, I was sneaking across the avenue and some man grabbed me by my collar and stalked me back home and put me in front of my... Now, today that couldn't happen, but... (laughs) put me in front, rang the bell and said, I caught her crossly and I don't think you let her do that. And sure enough, my mother and father said, thank you, thank you, and pulled me inside. Wow. <laughs> so you have to be on your P's and Q's because everybody in the neighborhood, and they were also, what was uh, very interesting was also is that uh, they all had what was considered good government jobs. So it was a working class, you know, they were firemen and, um, you know, garbage collectors and, you know, worked on the subway. And, and my dad was the only person we knew, but Bob and I, my husband, Bob and I grew up together. And he was the only person we knew that had a college degree. Hmm. And so we were like, he was going to be, we were going to do better than my dad. We were both going to go to college and we were gonna make more money than he did. And we were going to just do better than than my dad. Uh, let's let's just jump into that for a minute. That's really interesting. So was that um, a, a, a something that came from yourself and I guess in Bob's world, Bob's <laughs> Bob's mind, or was that something that your parents also instilled in you, do better than us? You know, um, they were not the best parents in the world, my, my mom and dad. So my dad, you know, he, he didn't want us, he wanted us to do well, but he was always disappointed. And I was always disappointed. We didn't, you know, we didn't ever measure it up. And my mom was always incredulous. Like, oh, really? You got B? Huh. Wow. Well, who'd have thought? And my dad was. But Bob's parents were just the opposite. Mm-hmm. Bob's parents, who were not as educated as my dad at all, um, again, working class folks, but they told Bob he was going to be anything he wanted to be, that he was smart and he was successful. So it didn't matter what the school counselor said who told him, don't even try to go to college. You're not college material. So I took a, I borrowed a lot from Bob and Bob's parents because they were, they weren't, um, they they were supportive. They just thought their sons were great and they could be anything and do anything. And, and I trust you. And, uh, and my parents were less trusting you know, um, so yeah, thank you, Bob. Uh, now I know storytelling was a huge part of your life and you've told that, and I do want to give you the opportunity to talk about when that started, but it kind of begs the question for many of us, our parents either did or didn't read to us. They did or did not tell stories to us. 
but you've just described the neighborhood as one where people can grab you by the scruff of the neck and bring you back home. So um, I know you'll tell us where storytelling began for you, but where do you first see it and, and, and learn it? And, and when did that become a part of your life? Was that in the bedroom being read to or something else? That was my dad again. He believed in books. He loved books. And and we couldn't afford to buy books. So I only got books on Christmas. Every Christmas, he would buy me five or six classics, hmm. something that he thought I should read. Um, but we went to the library. I walked myself to the local library, which was a terrible little library. You know, it was a it wasn't a well-to-do neighborhood, and so the library had limited books. So I literally, I read every book in my age group mm. in the library. You could take seven books and you could bring them home. And, and then you couldn't, you know, kick any seven more books until you took those back. And I, I lived in the library and the library took me to places. It took me to, you know, just like, I mean, it's such a typical story, but the library just helped me escape so my parents never read to me, but they expected me to read mm-hmm. and they gave me access to books and, and I love to read. I read, I read everything as much as I, I could possibly read. And my father, by buying me the classics, exposed me to good writing. So I didn't always pick out books that were good writing. <laughs> you know, I picked out whatever, whatever caught my eye, whatever mm-hmm. was interesting to me. But he made sure that, that I read books that were well-written, and, and he would ask me about them. He'd say, well, you know, tell me about this book. What, what was the main theme? What was going on in the story? <laughs> it was like a little, uh, you know, quill on my, on my books. Like I remember once going up into the, to the bathroom and trying to finish the book because I knew he was going to ask me. And he'd say, where are you? And I'd say, oh, I'll be out in a minute. <laughs> I knew there was a test. Wow. That's interesting, too, because that dynamic about parents who obviously give us in their own way a gift, whether or not we're willing to receive it. Um, but sometimes that causes a little bit of a friction. And so when it comes to writing, uh, for some of us, it means we double down. We actually go to that place where our parents found joy or fulfillment in writing. But for others of us, it means we rejected that kind of work or that kind of writing or that kind of story for something else. So which was it for you? Which stories appealed to you most when you were starting this journey? You know, I, I can't remember ever reading a book that I didn't enjoy. Hmm. Now I can as an adult, but as a child, there was no book that wasn't wonderful. That wasn't, you know, I can still remember reading, um, uh, Rebecca, and I can still remember reading Nancy Drew, and I can still remember, you know, there wasn't any books that disappointed me. And I passed that all on to my children. You know, I read to my children every day till they said to me, Mom, we're really too old for this. We're so sorry, and we hate to tell you this, but we'd rather just go by ourselves. And read. How, how they were like were nine and ten. Oh, nine and ten. They were nine and ten. When they revolted, they revolted. <laughs> the last book we read together was Watership Down. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. That was our last book together when they told me, it's just so much more fun to read by ourselves. But we're so sorry, Mom. We don't want you to be sad. But we don't want to read with you anymore. <laughs> and then I passed that down to our grandchildren. So we have a, a family of readers and writers. My son is a writer. My grandsons are writers. So writing is obviously a big part of this, but the storytelling, I guess, first, because even though books were a big part of your life, you've talked before with others about how you would go down to the stoop and tell these stories, and the stories were all fabrications. You'd say that, well, of course, like any great stories are, are made up, but you would then say that they actually happened to you. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, how did that start and, and did it end or did it just trans, you know, transmogrify into writing? What, 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 what's the story behind the story? You know, stories were always in my head and characters were always in my head. And, and so my friends didn't want to hear them. You know, I would say, Oh, I, I have a story that, that I've been thinking about and you want to hear it. And no, no. You know? <laughs> so then I said, Oh, 
an adventure. And they'd say, you had an adventure? I said, yes. And then I would tell them this elaborate, elaborate narrative about this thing. And then they would get a little suspicious, you know, because <laughs> sometimes the stories took me to faraway lands that I'd never been and never you know, seen. And, and so they'd go ask my big brother if it was true. And he would say no. And they would come back and tell me I was a liar and that I shouldn't lie and you're a liar. And I would go home crying. And then the next day, another story would come to me and I'd say, I had another adventure. They would listen. They would listen to every word. So they enjoyed the stories, but they would then go dog me out. How, how little were you doing this storytelling? I was probably like 10, 11, um, Nine, ten, eleven. Right. So this all became yeah. a part of your, obviously, who you were. I mean, it was already a part of you, but then it became a part of how you shared yourself with others, which is a big deal. Yeah. That's very, in a way, it's also very, uh, very exposing. Because even if everything you talked about was just a lark, you made it all up, um, it's still you. I mean, that's the thing about storytelling is it's, it's, it's always about the storyteller as well. So how did that then, as you became a little older, were you able to still continue being yourself through your writing? I mean, what, what form did that take as you went through middle school or junior high school, high school, et cetera? So in, um, I was still making up stuff in line in middle school. <laughs> I would um, turn in book reports that were books that I wrote in my head. I would give it an ISBN number. I would give it a publisher. I would, I would you know, and give in my book report. And the teachers were, oh, Karen, this is such an interesting story. I don't remember this book. I don't know this author. And, and you know, but they, I got an A, an A plus. But then when I hit high school, you know, nobody was fooled anymore. And so I became a journalist. I wrote um, for the, my high school newspaper. Hmm. And then you actually had to write facts, which were very boring. Very boring to have to stick to the truth. But I, but I did learn the discipline of researching your story and interviewing somebody and making sure that you didn't embellish. And, you, and it was a good discipline. It was a good discipline to make facts interesting and to make stories come alive and so that was a good experience and i'm sure that and then i kept writing and that must have come in handy later um but before we in in fundraising where sometimes facts can seem dry but the emotion is is so important but before we go there so you're making your way through school i just have to say that when you were turning in these book reports about books that didn't exist i'm wondering you know if all those teachers, they, there must have been one who was, who was tuned into that and still wanted to encourage you or something. Did you ever go back, like some of us have done, and go back and visit teachers later, and not not necessarily to ask if they knew you were fabricating these book reports, but just because they maybe they were important as you made this journey uh, as, as a person as a writer. I wish I had Jay. I wish I had gone back and thanked Mrs. Bloodgood and Mrs. Morrow. Um, you know, people who encouraged me and, and told me that I was special and told me that I had gifts to the world because home was rough, home was tough. And, and so it was just so good to have all these teachers. I so, you know, the, 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 Lord, the Grace Gloria, the Grace Gloria and Loretta Loria. I mean, there was so many, I look how long it's been since I've been in school, but I remember every one of those teachers and I remember everything that they did for me. And, uh, and they got me, so I ended up skipping, you know, I graduated very young from high school. I just turned 16. Mm-hmm. So my senior year, I was 15 oh. and I turned 16 in March and I graduated in June. Um, because teachers, because of teachers who believed in me mm-hmm. and, uh, there was a wonderful, his first name was Jay and he was a guidance counselor and I was I was having a real hard time at school and I was in a deep depression. It was my senior year and he would let me hang out in his office and I would help him do different things that he had to do. And so he looked at me and he said, so Karen, what are you going to do when you, when you repeat, you know, your senior year next year? Cause I said, repeat my senior year. 
He said, well, you don't think that you can cut class for months and still graduate, do you? I said, graduate? <laughs> I turned myself around. I skipped class for like two and a half months. I just turned myself around. I audited classes. I found out who the best history teachers were, even though it wasn't my history teacher. I would go stand in the back and, and listen. And, and Bob and I would study together and do all kinds of things so that we could pass all the, the regents um, exams and um, it, teachers just saved my life so many times. Wow. And going through the experience that early and then, I, I mean, there are so many things that people look forward to in school, depending on their school. Um, uh, all those times usually come when we're just a little bit older. So you kind of rocketed past that or, you know, through it to this next phase of your life. Did you, were you trying to leave the neighborhood? It sounds like the neighborhood struggles at home perhaps, but, but you were, were you trying to get out and go to college and get out in the world? What was your vision at that point? What did you imagine for yourself at 15 in your senior year of high school? Yeah. So this was the sixties and this was, you know, anti Vietnam and pro black and, um, I didn't think about the future. You know, I was I was all caught up in the activism and, and I was very immature. I was still very immature to be to be in college. And so I, I didn't graduate then. You know, I was you know, you could find me standing in the ladies' room with the on test with a turned over trash bag, you know, giving speeches and, and reading revolutionary poetry really? and I was writing like yeah. crazy and hanging out with artists and, and activists and just getting myself in trouble, 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 trouble. Uh, but fortunately, once again, fortunately, Bob Osborne, <laughs> who is this solid, you know, just feet on the ground, smart, man who just happened, he fell in love with me when I was 13 years old, and he kept me from falling all the time, all the time. He, you know, when he got me to go back to college, he got me, you know, I mean, I got myself through college, but it was with his encouragement and his, and his support. Um, he, he's the one who got me my first job in, uh, in fundraising. Oh, oh uh, I mean, I'd love to go there, but I have to know first, did you, did you go off to the same school? And what, how did, it, did you just, I mean, decide together, okay, we're going to leave now and go to school and then go into work? Because you've been together a long time as a couple as well. Yes. So there was no money to go away to school. Um, there was City College and, uh, and, and, he, and he was in the service. There were, there were traps then. And so Bob decided to join when he knew he was 1A. So he and his brother joined the Air Force together during the Vietnam War. And, and, they, were, and they were away. We got married during the time he was in the Air Force. But yes, he always was going to graduate from college. I was going to graduate from college. We were going to do better than our parents. Bob had great ambition. And, and I was... I was scared. I was not adventurous, um, but but he was. So on the day he came back from got out of the service, and we were going to go away to college for him. I was going to work and help him get through college. And I kept finding excuses. Oh, I have to say goodbye to this person. Oh, so and so invited us to dinner. And so finally, he just looked at me, he handed me a ticket, and he said, Karen, I'm going to be at the airport this time. You either come or you don't, but I'm leaving. <laughs> so we flew off to Kansas together, and, and we've just been a team. We've, we've been a team. In the early years, he had to do a lot of, of the heavy lifting but he was very worldly by then, very, you know, came from a great home. Uh, he'd been all over the world by then, even though he was only 21, 22 years old. He'd been in charge of things by then, and I'd never left the Bronx. But, but then I caught up. I caught up. It, it also sounds like you were probably some fire that 
that fueled him or else <laughs> he wouldn't have been yeah. there. I mean, that that's definitely a yin and yang kind of uh, scenario and romance, what you just described. But then going to Kansas, I'm trying to imagine it, going from the Bronx to Kansas, uh, that, that must have been mind-blowing. <laughs> it was. It was just an amazing. People would actually ask me on the street, which one are you? Well, which one are you? Because there were only six black people in the whole town, in the whole college. <sighs> It was, it was quite, the, but you know what? In so many ways, it was a great experience because number, number one, we had to stand on our own two feet. Mm. Bob was used to standing on his own two feet, but I wasn't. Mm. But there was no running home to mom or dad or auntie or the, you know, the friends down the block. Right. And also to see a different world from the Bronx, to see a world that was totally the opposite of everything that I was used to told me that there was more in the world. You know, it gave me um, curiosity that the things in the, in the books that I read were real. And I just had to get out there and find them and see them and do them. Um, so it was a good experience. And Bob got out in three years. We were only there for three years. And then we came, you know, we came back. And we've, we've been a, a team just getting each other through school and starting a business he started his business first and you know it's just it's been a, a really good uh partnership now you said that he yeah. was a a motivating force in introducing you to fundraising but you've had this stellar for those who don't know you you had a a very quick rise uh in the field i mean you you were from the time of graduation to the time you were over at uh was it trinity you were i mean you were already director of development within matter of three years so how how did that happen oh, for you it wasn't it wasn't that fast it wasn't that fast <laughs> so i got to uh, rensselaer as oh, director rensselaer. of corporate and foundation relations mm -hmm. and and then but then it did go fast uh so then uh, bill mcgoldrick my boss oh. uh, promoted me to director of major gifts i met jerry panis uh, who you and I both have admired and, and had as friends. And he just filled my head with what was possible mm. in terms of fundraising and major gift work. He made it sound so amazing. And so did Bill mm. and Gary Evans was my VP. And he talked about the profession as a noble profession. So all of those things taught me to love this work. So I went from director of major corporate relations to director of major gifts to director of development in eight years. Right. So was that fast? And then Sounds after eight years, I went to VP of, at, uh, at Trinity College, nice. um, which was um, a wonderful experience. Because to be honest with you, I never thought that a majority institution would hire a black woman to mm. be a VP of advancement. And when he when they did hire me, I was the only one in the country um, at a majority institution. I know it's too, it's almost too easy a question, but I have to ask you how that felt. I mean, you you were aware of that, and and um, and you decided. Well, first of all, you decided to take the role. I know it was offered to you, but you decided to take it. That's that's your own personal agency, which you are exhibiting your whole life. So, what did that feel like? How did you decide to do it, and what did you make of it? You know, um, so Bill encouraged me, Bill McGoldrick encouraged me because I, I'm not leaving Rensselaer and for a reason, I love it here. This is a great job. And he really, um, said, Karen, you know, you should try, you should, you should, uh, interview. And Carrie Pelzel, uh, was also another, she was a, I don't know if you know Carrie, she was, ended up being at, um, VP at Dartmouth. And, but anyway, Carrie was on the board and she encouraged the then president to contact me. And, and, and I, I fell in love with Trinity, uh, Tom Garrity, the president had only been in president about eight months. Okay. And he said, walk with me, walk with me. <laughs> this is my interview. So I'm walking along and he stopped. Now this is a, a campus, you know, a small liberal arts college. Mm -hmm. So, uh, not a lot of students, but certainly thousands, 2,000 students. 
And he said hello by name to every person we passed. He introduced me to the gardener who was on his knees putting in a plant. And he stopped and he said, Mr. Mr. Rivera, I'd like you to meet someone. And Mr. Rivera stood up and took off his gloves and shook my hand. And then he had it. Then Tom said, tell me what you're planting. Oh, that's so great. Is that? Oh, yeah. That looks good. Okay, good job. Good job. And I'm going to walk and walk and walk. I was in love. I finished that walk with him. And I knew I was going to, if he offered me this job, I was going to take this job. And the way he offered it to me was somebody was coming along the path at us. Mm -hmm. And the person walked up to him and he said, aren't you President Garrity? And Tom said, yes, I am. And he said, well, I'm from the blah, blah, blah newspaper. And I want to, you know, ask you something. And I stepped in front of Tom and I looked at the reporter and I said, and you should go make an appointment at his office. And I hadn't been hired or anything. But you should go make an appointment at his office. And then I'm sure that we can work something out. Thank you so much. And Tom looked at me and he said, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> Best interview ever. <laughs> wow. So you were there for a bit, too. I mean, it was how many? Five years. years. Five years. Yeah. Um, Five years and three presidents. Wow. That's a lot of change. Mm. I mean, we can talk about that for an hour, but but, but I won't. I won't course you do that but uh, but one of the things i'm trying to figure out is you know this connective tissue between you as a writer because once a writer always a writer one way or another mm-hmm. um stories are still percolating and then here you are doing this work in fundraising now i know there's there's some obvious connective tissue because you needed to be able to talk to people about something that's meaning and its importance um and that that is storytelling but it's a different it's a slightly different can you First of all, can you help us to make the connection between uh, that life as a writer and that life as maybe uh, a writing within the context of development? How does that work? And, and is that was that a kind of a natural thing for you? No, um, I became, I was very ambitious. And I became consumed with reading about my profession and going to conferences and learning everything that I could learn. And so my writing really kind of took a back seat Mm -hmm. uh, during those years because I was on the road all the time. I was um, just, you know, trying to make huge goals. I had to be strategic. I had to manage a president and a board and a team and, so it was, I was very, very involved in, in the world of management and leadership. And I met this incredible woman, Sandy Powell, and she was a teacher. She was a trainer. And she did a lot of leadership training. And I wanted to be good at that. And so she, she would bring me along. She would you know, have people hire both of us. And she taught me and taught me and taught me. And that became really important to me. So I volunteered for CASE, the Council for the Advancement and Supportive Education. I volunteered for CASE. Uh, both Bill and Gary, uh, my bosses, supported that. And so I started volunteering for CASE all through my time at Rensselaer. And I got invited to go to Australia and to go to South Africa and to go, you know, so I became a teacher. And of course I incorporated stories in all of my teaching. You know, I I told stories. I told stories about Bob. People think they know Bob. I would say, this is my tall, good looking husband, Bob. Have you met him? He's not buying that answer. Look at his face. He is unhappy with that. I'm I'm okay with it. You know, I'll I'll roll with it. But you got to make Bob happy too, because we make our decisions together. And so stories, and um, we're all in, you know, in everything that I taught. uh, But not. But I wasn't writing. I wasn't writing. Yeah. Um, Then you, of course, from there, you went into this pretty amazing. Uh, career with the firm itself. Um, and yes. I, so can you tell us a little bit about that origin and, because, and and maybe for those who aren't familiar with the firm's work, a little bit about 
all the things that, that you all have done. Yeah. So again, Bob to the rescue, um, I called him up. I had three presidents at Trinity, three. And I said to him at the, I called him up when the third president, who was just one president too many, uh, came on board. And I called Bob up and I said, I'm quitting my job. And he said, Karen, wait a minute. Can we talk about it? No, I'm quitting right now. I had no, you know, no other job or anything. Packed up my box, crying all the way, stomped my way out and, and went home. And spent the summer trying to think what my next step would be. I took a job that was a mistake, and I was there for about four months when I realized I made a mistake. So I called Bob again, I told him I was quitting my job, and he said, no, we both just get one of those, Karen. I get one, you get one, where you quit and you don't have anything else coming. <laughs> you, you need to have some, a plan after you quit this job. But then he said to me, you know, hang up your shingle. Hang up your shingle, they will come. And I thought, oh, will I get paid? What will happen? I start a business. You know, it just sounded so scary to me. But he just said, I'm telling you, just bring your computer here. He had already had an office space. He had already was doing business, doing something else, doing different kinds of work. And so I put up my computer. I never missed a day of work. Never. I landed my first client and... I was just off and going. So we do, you know, we do everything that you would expect. We do campaigns and, you know, feasibility studies. We do board development and board building. We do um, fundraising, skill building, helping people, you know, audits, everything that you would think of as a full service. And, and it was international. So I got invited all over the world. I got to see the world. Um, because people would invite me to come speak and teach. And so that was, that was heady and awesome. Um, the company is now run by my son and he, and they do a lot of everything that I just said, but also a lot of, um, inclusion, diversity, um, equity and, and access work as well, which wasn't a big part of what we were doing before. Uh, well, and that, that's been true of many firms, that, that now there's uh, more attention and focus on that thing, which was always there, but wasn't part of the brand of many, many firms' practices. Um, but that's a that's a 25-year arc right there, I believe, right, for, for you with the firm? Yeah. Um, what was yes, the most fulfilling, 25 years. What's the most fulfilling part of that? Do you have a particular memory of something that just strikes you as being emblematic of all of that? Yeah, so actually two things. So one was falling in love with different not-for-profits mm -hmm. and becoming a part of a part of them. Mm -hmm. So for example, Easter Seals was one of my first, National Easter Seals was one of my first clients. And I saw their work up close I saw the transformational work that they were doing up close. And so I became a donor while I was still earning money from them. And, and then when they weren't a client anymore as a, as a big client, you know, we've moved on to others. Um, I still stayed a donor. Um, Girls Inc., Big Brothers, Big Sisters. I just fell in love with mostly organizations that helped youth and and it, it changed my life. It humbled me. It taught me things uh, because I had to know them intimately to help them. And then, therefore, I would become a donor and a volunteer. And uh, you know, Bob used to say, they pay us, Karen. They pay us. You're not supposed to be paying them. <laughs> you, you obviously don't know how this works. <laughs> so that was... That was transformational. I'm right now. I'm on Easter Seals, Florida's board, state board. Now I, you know, I just so that was that was life changing. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that was amazing during those 25 years really was the international travel. Um, you know, to go to Asia, to go to almost every every Western European country, um, to, to to teach in in Africa. To it was just. Um, 
all over the United States, every state but Alaska. That was transformational as well, you know, to, to learn cultures, you know, to teach. I tell you, I was in uh, Sweden mm. and I'm on this big stage and there are about 300 people in the audience. And I got up and I said, okay. So when I gave him this scenario and I said, so who's got a great answer? I said, come on, people, can't let me die up here by myself. Who's got a really great answer? I said, okay, I have done something wrong. Somebody needs to talk to me. I said, yes. And she says, Karen, we're basically communists here. And so when you say who has a great answer, we never want to put our nose up above anybody else. Because, you know, we're all equal. Mm. I said, Oh, okay. Who has an answer that everybody's thinking, but you're willing to share? And all the hands went up. <laughs> but one learns cultural differences. You know, in Asia, when I was teaching strategic conversations, and we were in Hong Kong, and the person said, you know, I don't think that's so not Asian. That, you know, that's not something we would do. And so I said, well, if you did do it though, what could that look like? Mm -hmm. How would you make that work for you mm -hmm. if you thought it was you know, a good idea? She said, I do think it's a good idea. So I said, well, then what would it sound like? And, and so they would you know, make it work for them, for their culture. And, and that ta taught me that you know, people are all the same, really. It's kind of, maybe it's not Asian to ask questions, but it was Asian to answer them, <laughs> you know? That there's so much commonness in the humanity, uh, and especially in the philanthropy world, because um, we're all starting from, uh, from a place of good, a good place. Mm -hmm. you, you were um, obviously totally committed to that work. Um, it's been yeah. such a huge part of your life. Um, yeah. At some point, uh, you made a decision that you were going to return to your first love. I don't mean another man. Bob is still very much there. But, um, but the first uh, career love. And was that, I know many people have talked about the travel wearing them out or just a need to do something different or to express a voice they hadn't had a chance to. Do you remember the moment when, where you were and, and when you decided that you were going to make a shift? Where were you? I do. It wasn't um, at first a decision to make a shift. These women started talking to me, Jay, in my head. These two women, Kara and Alex, just started talking to me. They were having whole conversations. They were, and so I was on an airplane, you know, I was every place I went, I always had my computer with me. I'm flying to someplace. I was on the road four days a week. I started writing their conversation down and then I started thinking about Clack and I started. And so the first book I wrote in the Delta Lounge and the Marriott Hotel and, you know, on airplanes, just squeezing in writing time because it just bubbled up. It was it was just there. So my first book, Getting It Right, and I finished it in the year. Um, lots of people write faster, but I was working and, you know, um, traveling and, uh, but, but then the, the shift, the shift happened and it was because of travel, too much travel. Uh, I'm not embarrassed to share this story, but it was the moment I knew I had to change. So I was in the Detroit airport and I'd been on the road all week and it was a Friday night and they canceled my flight. And I started to cry. I just, tears filled up. And I called Bob and I said, they canceled my flight and I can't get home. Now I'm a mature woman at this point. My kids are out of the house. <laughs> and he said, it's okay, Karen. He said, get up, stand up, stand up, stand up. He said, I'm telling you, like write down the, 
down the road, there's a hotel. It's right in the airport. He knew the airport because he traveled a lot too. So I'm walking down. He says, you see the, the, the hotel? Yes. Go on in, go on in. So I go in, I'm waiting online. I get to the desk and the lady says, there's no more rooms. Everybody, all the rooms are taken except the presidential suite, which was some ridiculous amount of money. I'm still on the phone with Bob. And Bob said, just give her your card, babe. Hand that gold. (laughs) 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 Just give it to her. So I gave it to her and I went and I slept. And I woke up that next morning and I said, I can't do this anymore. If I'm going to fall apart as if somebody had died or somebody in my family had some horrible disease because of a canceled flight, I got to change. I got to change my life. I got to change, you know, what I'm doing. So that's when the shift started to happen. It it was a great, I had to gradually work my way out of it and towards it. Um, I was still learning my craft as a writer. I I had to improve the book. Um, I had so many things that I didn't know back then, but that was the moment in Detroit airport on a Friday when a snowstorm shut everything down and I lost it. Wow. So Detroit were you out as, as a, as a, as a, I guess a fundraising CEO, but, uh, but it, it opened the door back again for you to finish the book. So that's, that's pretty, uh, amazing. Um, now I, I also know that you have talked about that process of getting the book into print, but, but I did want to ask you about something a little bit different, which is, um, you said you heard these voices in your head and, uh, and then you started letting them out. So you gave them space to breathe, which is remarkable, but every writer has different voices, perhaps if they're, if they're, if they have the muse in their head, you have different sorts of protagonists. So in, uh, I guess this Tango lies, you have this, the, the opening sequence is a woman who is mature She's she's earning Social Security. She's huffing or puffing her way up the stairs to be in a place that it doesn't look like she loves, but she loves her family. So she's, I guess, tolerating this environment she's in. We haven't gotten too far to see how she ended up there, but that's where she is. And she enters the apartment and it's it's pretty awful. So for anybody who's listening to this, just read the book uh, or at least listen to you read the first chapter, um, which then will lead you to, to, to get the book. But you have picked a very specific kind of protagonist. How did you choose to go there? Why did she speak to you? So Vera, unlike Alex and Kara, the protagonist in the first book, Getting It Right, the 30-somethings, I wanted to, I wanted to uh, elevate a mature woman and somebody that was more like me. And Vera... Vera came to me. Uh, I'd met a woman like her who spoke in this very precise way. Vera's one of the things that um, you might find annoying when you're reading (laughs) is that Vera speaks in this very, she never does contractions. You know, she doesn't use contractions. She uses this formal speech because her parents had told her as a child that, that as a black woman, she needed to speak in this articulate way so that people wouldn't doubt her and that she could blend in better. Um, and Vera, you know, finds her son brutally murdered, but she meets Danny. I like having characters that are different races. So in Getting It Right, there's, you know, um, Kara's mixed race, Alex is white. Uh, Vera is an older black woman, but Danny's a 25-year-old hot mess white girl. And and I love writing about uh, different cultures and um, people of different colors and different abilities because there's a humanness and our experiences are the same in so many ways. You know, we're flawed. I write about women. I mean, I have lots of men in the story and I have sex scenes too, but um but they're all flawed women, relatable, flawed women. 
and and I and I liked Vera. I liked Vera a lot, and I liked Danny. I had a friend call me up and she said, Danny's getting me really mad. I'm just telling you, she's really, really getting me mad. <laughs> <laughs> That's always a good sign. If somebody's getting that involved in your book, they call you up. <laughs> exactly. That's the best part of doing book clubs because they really, you know, it, it's, it's, I imagined it was going to be, so tell us about your writing journey and how did you start this? Right. And no, you're talking about, okay, so, what happened there? And why would Vera do that? And how come Alex was like that? And, and it's like sitting and watching people talk about girlfriends, talk about. Yeah. Actually, it sounds like know. it must've been back on the stoop in the Bronx. If people that engage with the story <laughs> that they think it's real because for them, it is real. You've touched them, but okay. Real. So, but, but why murder <laughs> mysteries? What, so that's very specific too. So, Murder mysteries are a definite, you know, that's a, that's a, that's, that's a, the hard stuff to write, but it's also pretty passionate stuff. where did you, why'd you go there? So the first book is, is suspense. It's not a murder mystery. The first book is, um, is a suspense page turner, but there's right. no murder in it. The one that's coming out now was actually my second book that oh. I, that I wrote. And it too is women's fiction suspense. But when I, when I put reckonings aside, because an editor told me it needed a lot of work and I didn't feel like doing it at the time, I decided I wanted to write a murder mystery because there's a different discipline to that. I can't let my characters just take me any place they want to go. I mean, literally, they, you know, in, um, Roxy and Rex and Reckonings, I'm taking her here and she's over here someplace and things just happen that that I feel out of control with. But when you're writing a murder mystery, you really have to know how it ends. You have to know how the murder happened. You have to know, you know, and then you have to plant the clues so that when people get to the end, they're surprised, but they're not like, what? Like, where did this come from? You know, it's, you remember the movie Sixth Sense? Oh, Do you remember yeah. that movie? Mm-hmm. And... And, and the ending is so surprising. But then if you just think about it, you go back and every clue was there. Mm-hmm. Every single clue was there. It's just that we didn't see them. So I, I just, that was like a, a challenge mm-hmm. to try something new. It turned out to be my second book, but really it was my third. So do you have um, future books already in mind or do they are they coming to you? Sort of like that dialogue came to you when you were in the, various hotels um, in, in earlier days? So big, book four is um, about uh, halfway done, and it's historical fiction. Mm-hmm. Totally new genre. New, new 1924 Harlem. Totally different, um, different story. Mm-hmm. And then book five is just, you know, the characters are in my head, but I don't know what the plot is. I don't know what I'm going to do with them. But I should be finished um, True Grace, True Grace, by the summer. And I'm, I'm very hopeful that uh, my publisher will love it and, and want to bring it out the following year. And, and then this other one is just, you know, it's, it's, it's a fog. But it's there. You've, you've been um, an inspiration and teacher to many in this field for a long time. And it would be fair to say that the course you're, uh, you're taking today um, and you're giving yourself space to take to write these books and then bring them into the world for people to read. Um, and uh, you also host a series of uh, video discussions with other authors, which is another form of this generosity where you're giving space for other people to tell their stories and what they're reading, why they're important. Um, all of that could be inspiring to people who, like yourself, were, have been in the field, are in the field today, in the field of fundraising and philanthropy, and then wondering um, you know, what, what they might give themselves permission and space to do in the future. Have how, do people ask you about that? And what, what if anything, would you offer in the way of um, advice 
or counsel to people who are thinking about that next step uh, for what they contribute to the work? I get a lot of um, would-be authors, would-be authors who say, oh, I've always wanted to write a book, or I started a book 10 times, you know, over the years, and it's only this far, and, and the best advice I have is finish it. Finish it. Stop editing, stop critiquing yourself, stop. Just decide to finish it. Because once you get to the end, once you get to the end, there's such a sense of satisfaction. There's such a, a rush. And then you can go back and you can edit it and you can make it better and you send it to beta readers and they give you advice. And, but you've got to finish it. And that's true for artists. I know people who have picked up painting, picked up sculpting, especially during this pandemic. So many people have turn to hear that other voice in themselves, but then they don't keep going. You know, people who started podcasts and then stopped after a month, people who, you know, it's, um, you gotta finish. And that's probably from developing. If you don't close the gift, it doesn't count. If all you've done is, you know, is keep the relationship and this donor loves me and the donor and I have such good relationships, but how much money did you raise? <laughs> so, As Jerry you used to say, it. right? Ready, aim, 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 aim. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you got a fire. You got a fire. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for this, Karen. Really, really appreciate you and, uh, and everything you've done and, and your willingness to share all this with us. Thank you so much, Jake, for having me. The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at DonorSearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions. 